Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. We are going to go ahead and start with this week's or this bi-weekly journal club. Um, today, we're going to talk about um, vaccines, variants, and and as much as we can in the next hour. I want to um, start off by, of course, going through our agenda. We're going to start with the state of the state, which it feels like we um, haven't done that in a very long time. But I also want to go through um, some updates and information around what we know about the variants and any and some clinical updates that we actually in the last few weeks haven't touched upon. So starting with where we're at um, as a, a like globally, um, we're over uh, 106 million cases. Um, if we look at where the United States is at, um, that is over 20, we're over 27 million cases, which is a number I keep tripping up on <laughs> because it's, it's just keeps growing, unfortunately. Um, we have over 468 deaths that have um, been noted, and this was last updated this morning from the John Hopkins um, COVID resources. The good news is that we are seeing some um, changes and some declines in some of the is some of the infection rates and as well as hospitalizations. So this is a seven day um, moving average of, of the, the, the data. So what we're seeing is that over the last seven days, we've seen an average of 499 um, tests being done per, per 100,000 um, um, US citizen, US um, population and then a positivity rate of 6.6%. Um, We're also seeing that um, the daily confirmed cases has gone down to about 107,000 um, over the last seven days. And in Florida, um, which we're sitting right, um, still over that higher than recommended positivity rate, um, but we are doing much better at 7.7% um, um, positivity rate. When we're looking at the ER trends, um, they are looking at both COVID, um, pneumonia, shortness of breath, and influenza-like illness. Um, the COVID bar is really that purple, and I'm going to try to point it out for you, this little purple um, dotted line. So when what we're looking at and seeing is that as, um, you know, over the past um, few weeks, we, we've seen a decline in cases for COVID. What worries me is that we still see a high number of sh um, cases of shortness of breath. Um, as far as influenza, those cases have been um, down and pneumonia has been down as well. So I'm wondering if those short shortness of breath or maybe COVID that is not yet confirmed. Um, um, hopefully we'll get more information on that. When we look though to the COVID um, tracking project, we're able to see that um, the hospitalizations have um, gone down. Um, currently, we have um, 79,000 um, people currently hospitalized, um, even though <clears throat> this information shows the cases to be a little bit lower than what we just saw with the John Hopkins 
um, it was last updated yesterday. So I, I trust that the hospitalization number is pretty much in line and we're seeing um, that decline, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, we still see some of dis uh, um, the disparities that has plagued this pandemic. Um, we are seeing more cases among um, um, American uh, indigenous populations and native Hawaiian populations, and unfortunately more deaths in um, those um, African American populations as well as the indigenous population. When we look at Florida, you know, we have over 1.7 million cases in the state of Florida. Um, you know, our numbers have been going down when we look at the daily cases and daily positivity rates. So as of um, Monday, our daily positivity rate was 6.93%, which is improved um, from where we were at a few weeks back. Um, you can see that in the end of January, our positivity rate was at 14.63%. And we don't know what's gonna happen because we did just have a Super Bowl and um, you know, not sure what, where we're gonna go and what we're gonna see in the upcoming um, days to weeks. When we look at new cases per day, um, there was a small um, increase in the number from um, the seventh through the eighth, um, but nowhere near uh, yet what, what we've seen back in January. So that is good news. And then Florida is collecting data that we've discussed on this call before from the um, long-term care facilities. So the positivity rate amongst residents is 1.47% and amongst staff is 0.94%. So that's all good news. When we look at what's happening with long-term care across the country, it's really good that the COVID tracking project has been doing a lot of good research and, and data collection on this. So in long-term care, we've seen 1.2 million um, total cases, a little over that. Um, unfortunately, though, even though long-term care makes up less than 1% of, of our population, we've seen 36% of the deaths um, in this population. So total deaths are over 161,000. The impact that this is having on our facilities is, is substantial with over 32,000 facilities being impacted and we are all experiencing and feeling that in some way. I wanted to talk about the variants. Um, I think over the last four to six weeks, this, um, this has been something that's been in all of the headlines. Um, a lot of information and research is now being conducted to, to look at this. And um, it's fascinating science to try to, to, to see a virus um, mutate like it has in the past um, few months. CDC is tracking all of this. Um, we do see that the UK virus, which is B117, has um, over 900 cases, we have over 900 cases that is uh, with that variant, and we're now seeing that in um, over 34 um, in 34 states. The B1351 is the South African variant, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Um, we have nine reported cases in the United States as of um, yesterday evening, and that's over um, three states. And then P1 is the Brazil variant, 
and we have three cases reported in the United States, and um, that's in reporting in, the, in two states. When we look at this a little bit closer, so for the, the UK variant, we see that Florida is um, the one state with um, that 201 to 250 um, um, mark, and of the 690 cases, um, or actually now 932 cases, 343 of those cases are in Florida. And that number was updated this morning. So we are seeing uh, a lot of spread here in, in this state. Um, I'm curious and, and worried about what we're gonna see after the events of, um, of um, the Super Bowl events and, and the parties that we saw a lot of maskless parties um, this past weekend. And if you're a, um, a Super Bowl fan and a, um, a Buccaneers fan, uh, congratulations. I am not, so it was a rough weekend. When we look at um, the South African variant, we're seeing that it's in, um, in three states, uh, as, as we mentioned before, and for the Brazil variant in two states. You know, the, the question that I think um, has been asked of me um, quite a bit and is like, what makes these variants um, so strong? Like what, what is the, the issues that we're seeing? And I think a lot of that is being addressed. Um, we see that being addressed in um, the COVID task force meetings that are now being um, broadcast uh, three times a week and, and the World Health Organization has also spoken about this. And there's a lot of great research, um, genomic sequencing research and, and um, things that are happening at um, various universities, um, John Hopkins, Emory, um, various universities throughout the country. Um, so I, as I was looking through this, um, you know, when we're looking at the B117, that is the Origins are in the UK. It's now in over 70 countries, and um, as um, stated previously, now in over 34 states. Um, which, uh, as when I made this slide <laughs> last night, it was 33. So, it, um, the data is moving. The key mutations are, are noted there, and what I'll say about th those that the one that all of most of these variants have in common is um, N501Y. And that mutation helps the virus latch on more tightly to human cells. Um, it is thought to be what is helping to make some of these um, various more infectious. Uh, the other mutations, they, they, they range in what they do. They um, may help infected cells um, create new spike proteins. What we see with the um, the, the South African um, variant, there's some other things that it may help um, bind more tightly to human cells. And there's a lot of commonality between the South African variant and the Brazil variant. There's also a variant that we not talk, I've not heard about in the news um, very much. Um, um, the variant name is Cal20C. That's um, a variant that was seen in California. Uh, it has um, a mutation that is thought to make it um, have an advantage when spreading. But you know, we, we haven't seen that it has been more infectious like um, the, the UK variant. Uh, it has been located in the LA area and also oddly enough in Denmark. So um, 
I think they're doing more research to figure out what's really going on with that. The, the question that I think has um, kept me awake at night when I'm thinking about this is, what is the reinfection rates? And are those reinfection rates caused by the COVID variants? Uh, I was not made any more secure when about a week ago, Dr. Fauci said that um, the variants um, were most likely to become the dominant um, strains um, spreading in the United States and um, that you could get reaffected um, if the variant becomes more dominant. Now we have seen some, a lot of news and I wanted to get into vaccinations because the biggest question has been, well, what is the impact um, of what we're seeing with um, the, the vaccinations that are out there. So just to review, I know all of us probably have this synced into our minds and we know these vaccines like the back of our heads, but just the review, um, you know, we know that there, there are two um, vaccines that are out in, out in um, play right now that are a bit of, they have EUAs and, um, you may have already received either the Pfizer or the Moderna um, in your facilities, you know, and we're, we're, see, we're actively using those. In the UK, they also have AstraZeneca out, um, and we'll talk more about AstraZeneca in a minute, but um, the, the, the thing that made a lot of news is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, because um, what we're hoping to see approved um, at the end of the month is a single dose um, vaccination. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussions about the, the efficacy of those two, um, um, th that vaccination, because um, the, the initial report says 66% at preventing moderate to severe COVID with the 85% overall vaccine efficacy, um, which, you know, I think because um, the other two um, vaccines that are on the market are at 95%. After you receive a second dose, a lot of people were like, oh, well, that, that sounds so good. But I, I, I think it sounds wonderful. <laughs> it's pending approval, and we're, we're going to um, talk a little bit more about that. It's an adenovirus-based um, vaccination, much like AstraZeneca. Um, Novavax uh, should be not too far behind as far as getting approval in the UK. Um, I'm not clear on when it's going to be approved in the United States. Initial um, information said maybe quarter one, but for any businessy um, folks, you know we're in quarter one and we're in February, so I'm thinking that um, might be quarter two or um, later. When we're looking at the difference between these, you know, Pfizer requires cold storage, Moderna cold storage, Johnson and Johnson's, um, and AstraZeneca are a different refrigeration process. So we're we're very hopeful um, about those um, viruses, those vaccines. Rather, um, pardon me. I think um, even more so. Um, this has probably created that whole shopping effect that uh, you see some of your your patients may um, have. Um, it is interesting to see people saying, oh, I, don't, I want this vaccine over that vaccine. I just think it's so, so interesting. And, and I don't know what I was expecting. We do live in um, the post-Starbucks world where you can customize everything. I wanted to also highlight that 
there are other vaccines that are most likely not going <laughs> to ever be approved in the United States. The Sputnik V is the Russia's, um, va Russia's vaccination vaccine. Um, and there's a 91.4% efficacy that is a adenovirus based two dose um, vaccination. And then China has several vaccines that are out, um, much lower efficacies. Uh, um, you know, when you look at the, the third option of Sinovac Biotech, that that efficacy ranges depending on which trial in which country, which was just interesting to read. Um, so I'm not sure uh, of those two. And it, it, it is, there there's needs to be more research done about what's, what was happening with this Brazil variant, because in Brazil, um, I believe there are um, trials going on with all three of those vaccinations. So very curious to, to get some more information out of that area to figure out what's going on. I will also add that in um, um, African countries and in the Middle East um, countries, there are all sorts of trials going on with these three um, vaccines as well. So we learned um, a few days ago that there is a issue, there is a less efficacy um, in using AstraZeneca's um, vaccine um, on people who may have the South African variant. We, you know, it, it, that was also combined with learning that the monoclonal antibodies may not be, may not work as well for this variant. Um, so when we saw that there was a pause in vaccine, vaccinating, um, healthcare workers with AstraZeneca, it was quite alarming. They are doing more research, looking at doing more studies, trying to see if, if we need to do any, um, you know, if there needs to be more boosters, um, but um, seeing that pause and it, it was quite interesting. Wanna uh, flip the page to talk about what we're seeing in the United States. So um, COVID vaccines in the United States, there have been a total of well, over 62 million delivered to the states. And what we've seen is that when we're looking at this, um, when we're looking at this, um, it is, the, the issue is that of those vaccines that have been delivered, we haven't seen um, consistent administration state to state. Um, about 43 million um, plus um, vaccines have been administered. When you break that down, 32 million um, plus people have received one dose and um, 9.8 million have received um, two doses. Uh, and looking at what's happening with the federal um, pharmacy partnership, we have seen that um, the total number of doses administered in long-term care facilities have been over 5 million with over 3.8 million receiving one dose and 1.1 million um, receiving two doses, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, we still though see a lot of disparities when it comes to who's receiving the doses. And I've been thinking about this um, a lot because I know that um, I, I live in Broward County, which is in South Florida. And I've been trying to get my father, my grandmother, and um, my aunts um, with get them scheduled with a, um, a, a vaccine. And the interesting thing is the locations of where you could go is very far away from where um, they live. And I think we need to um, 
really think about that when we're um, thinking about how um, we are administering and where we are um, administering these vaccines. I was really happy to hear about Yankee Stadium in New York opening up because um, that, that definitely helps. Um, you know, and in the conversations I've had about vaccine confidence and hesitancy, I wonder if we're talking enough about access. So, um, you know, that's me on the soapbox. <laughs> Probably more to come later. But this is some if, with some interesting information from the CDC showing um, how few um, people of it, the indigenous people, um, um, Hispanic and um, um, Black um, individuals have not received that first dose and even less received the um, second dose. So something that they're um, monitoring and we should all be aware of. There's also, um, when you're looking at who's received the first dose and you know, there, there wasn't an, a, 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 I think a, a lot of great logic in, in giving doses to healthcare workers first because um, of, of the fact that we're on the front line, we're doing um, a lot of different work. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting to see that so many of our seniors in our in our highest risk population have not yet received that second dose. So that is something to, to keep track of. And um, I we, I've been looking at this diagram from um, the Kaiser Family Foundation, where it really points out um, who of the seniors, which states are doing the best as far as vaccinating um, the seniors. And you know that leads me to uh, the question of what's what's what which state is with the best vaccination rates and it is west virginia so in talking about west virginia's vaccine successes you know they they did a different approach than what we um have we we've done in florida and a lot of other states have done they've really um formed a collaboration with a lot of the local pharmacies and I was um, listening to this story over the weekend and I, I started reading about it and just looking up all of the West Virginia data. They've received um, a total of 380,000 vaccinations, maybe 300, I think 380, um, yeah, 380,000 um, vaccines were delivered. They've administered 327,000 plus vaccinations with, um, 219,000 of those being a first dose and 107,000 being a second dose. I, it's just really remarkable. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if that was um, some of the reasons and some of the logic that went into partnering with retail pharmacies and seeing how well this collaboration has worked. Um, in Florida, We've, um, you know, we've we've had a total of um, 2.7 million um, vaccinations uh, delivered, um, with 2 million being the first dose and another 694,000, I believe, being um, the second dose. So, um, you know, we still need uh, to do a lot of things to catch up to um, and to use actually the supply that was uh, was um, sent to us, which I believe was over 4.2 million. Um, vaccines. When we look at where we sit in the the world population, as far as um, administering vac vaccines, um, Israel is doing the best. Um, we fall very low <laughs> down on the poll as far as um, vaccinating our our um, 
our people. And I'm hoping that, you know, as we now are going to see um, different corporations are trying to to help and um, the NFL offered all 30 of their stadiums to use as um, vaccine sites. I'm hopeful that we're gonna be able to do more mass vaccinations. I also really am excited about the, the retail pharmacy program. And, you know, in looking at what that means for us in long-term care, um, the, the AMDA has recently put out a, 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 a question, a FAQ actually about um, those facilities who are giving the first dose of the vaccine at the third um, vaccination clinic. Um, for the, the federal um, pharmacy partnership, you, the facilities were to have three um, vaccination um, clinics. Um, you were hopefully to be vaccine, vaccinating, um, given the first shots at either the first or the second. And then that third clinic was um, really like for those second shots. And we are seeing that um, there are individuals who are receiving their first shot at the third clinic. And the question um, that was raised on the AMDA um, state task force just last week was, what should we be doing about that um, the third, um, if a first shot is given at the third vaccine clinic? Um, so there is some um, good guidance, I guess, that we received in from the CDC. And um, it is stating that, you know, the long-term care um, facilities can work with um, the retail pharmacies, um, the long-term care um, pharmacies, um, if they are part of uh, like RA COVID vaccine provider can also administer that second dose. But there are some avenues for facilities to take if they find themselves in that situation. So I wanted to talk about just some updates. You know, there's um, there was a, a, a significant updates from the FDA on um, last week Friday. Um, we did see that uh, they will be meeting to discuss the EUA on and review everything for the Johnson and Johnson um, um, vaccination on February 26. They also reported that there were risk associated with compounding remdesivir and that they would caution against using remdesivir and that um, compounding remdesivir um, drug products. So there was some um, clarity on that as well as um, clarity on using convalescent plasma. Um, they want to limit the authorization to the use of high titer COVID-19 um, convalescent plasma for the treatment of hospitalized patients who have early disease. Um, those um, hospitalized patients who may have a poor, um, you know, poor immune response, you know, that's where we should be targeting it. And so they, they clarified their position um, from the EUA that was uh, um, approved back in August of 2020. We also, you know, this study um, I wanted to um, just mention um, is um, about, you know, there, there's been so much discussion about when should we be using monoclonal antibodies and we're actually going to devote our next session to the discussion of monoclonal antibodies. Um, there, there I, I saw that the IDSA recommended against the routine use of um, 
certain um, monoclonal antibodies for patients, outpatients for COVID-19 who may not be displaying symptoms, and was really stating that it should be for those high-risk um, patients. In this study, they looked at um, Regen, I'm going to butcher the name, but they looked at this antibody cocktail, and they really did find that it reduced viral load with a greater effect in patients with um, whose immune response had not yet been initiated or who had a high viral load at um, baseline. So there's the study and um, some of the guidance, it feels like it is in conflict and uh, um, I definitely wanted to bring in some experts. So that's gonna be our next call to just talk about what we're seeing when we're administering this um, um, monoclonal antibodies, not only in outpatient settings um, where you're thinking about going to the future center, but how we could actively do this and um, do it well in our nursing facilities. This study also, this study about the antibody status and incidence of um, COVID in healthcare workers was also published in December um, 2020. And I think it really speaks to the big looming question about immunity. Um, something that I keep hearing over and over again about like, it, are you getting 30 days or 36 days, 40 days, 30 weeks of immunity? And it's really unclear. Um, this study um, um, showed that the presence of anti-spike antibodies was associated with a reduced risk of um, COVID over 31, 31 weeks after um, uh, um, they followed up with these um, um, healthcare workers. So, I mean, that's a very positive sign. There is a lot of research still being done with this and a lot of information, more information to come. With that, I'm going to open it up for discussion. And um, we and now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Diane. Yes. Hi. Um, I'd be interested to know if anyone on the call has been using uh, any of the monoclonal antibodies in their facilities, in particular, BAMLAM, you know, and uh, alternatives. Hey, this is Maria. Can you hear me? We can hear yep. you. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, they've, they've used them here in Florida. I know at a local near me, um, up in Palm Harbor, they just successfully infused. And it's really easy through Optum to get it through the Optum Pharmacy. 
to get the antibodies delivered and it went really smoothly. You know, the, the issue, the most, you know, the most troublesome issue is just that somebody has to sit there for the infusion and for an hour afterwards, I think. So it's kind of uh, personnel heavy, but it's, um, it was really successful and she had improved symptoms, very mild symptoms, but she never got any worse and she actually felt better within a couple of days. Everything went well. Really great news. That's the only personal experience I have with it, but I know that they're also using it. They've used it in other parts of Florida. Yeah, and Dr. Kaplan, they are using it in, um, I, I know in the Tampa um, Bay area, the presenters who are gonna come on to discuss are with Omnicare and um, um, Rick Foley has provided us with um, quite a bit of information. So right. definitely more to come, you know. Hi, this is Rich Frankhauser. I'm actually in Iowa. Um, we've used it probably 20 times in our dementia unit. We had an outbreak in the dementia unit and um, results were excellent. We didn't have any problems. Um, there were two deaths um, from the unit. Both of those did not receive monoclonal antibodies. Um, some of the folks were close to hospice level and they slipped through okay. Um, so it has been interesting. We have one nurse that uh, has provided um, all of the infusions. So I've been actually pretty excited about it in our um, COVID patients that have a lot of comorbidities. Thank you. I see that we do have a question. Um, um, has anyone had any experience with the vaccination for people with a history of Gillian-Barre? I don't know if anyone on this call has had it, but I do know that, um, and I see that you put it in there, that the CDC um, was stating that the mRNA vaccine should be safe for use. Um, we could ask around to see if, uh, if anyone else has had that experience or had any patients who may have had a history of Gilead-Barre receive the vaccine for you. Any other comments or questions? Diane, just a potential, I think a little tiny clarification addendum. Actually, ironically, the, art, the last article that you just had up, um, amazingly enough, I just got the current issue of New England Journal, and it's actually in that, the February 11th issue, um, the antibody status and incidence of SARS infection in healthcare workers, just if anybody's trying to locate that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put it up. And thank you, Dr. Kaplan. I don't remember how many articles I've read. Oh, there's a million yeah. articles, obviously. Um, 72 hours. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for that. The <laughs> other, uh, in uh, passing, I just wanted to mention that I think many of us have seen that JAMA, this is not a testimonial for JAMA, but their viewpoint has had some nice little summary, capsule summaries. And I would refer um, everyone to the... Uh, uh, online version, JAMA January 28th has a nice two-page in viewpoint regarding the growing threat of viral variants. And there are about seven suggested steps to address this at the end that are very simple, didactic, concise, et cetera. Thanks. No Dr. Kaplan, if you have that article, if you wouldn't mind sharing it, because we'll put it in our um, 
our COVID um, library as well. I think I, I know which one you're referencing. So and I, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of literature and I think there's a lot of information. So wherever you're getting your sources, uh, it's always, you know, there's just a lot of, of wealth of information. The Annuals of Eternal Medicine, um, the British Medical Journal, I really am in love with the Canadian Medical Association Journal as well. So there's a lot of good information out there. Yeah. Definitely. So I don't want to hold you guys if you have no questions or if you have not thought of or formed the question, please do not hesitate to email us and, and ask. We will definitely look for the answers for you. And I thank you for um Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care.